once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Glad that you're with us this morning as we are in the second week of a new series that we're calling Church Matters, and um, there's a reason for that title more than just, you probably already picked up on it, there's a dual meaning to it. And first, we'll be talking certainly about matters of the church, things that we think are important to make sure we understand about what is the church to be and do, and, and uh, how are we to function, and what does our participation within the church look like as followers of Christ, those kind of things. But then also, it's just simply saying church matters. Church is important, significant. We're actually going to see in the text that we're going to look at today where you're going to see that the, the, uh, the church was the eternal plan of God and that it's all for his glory in such a way that it would be magnified to the heavenly realms. Certainly we'll talk about that more, but I want to just say this right now. If it's that important to God that he would plan the church before the world began, that it was in his mind in eternity past, then certainly it should be important to us. Church matters. Church is significant. So last week we started the series off by looking at uh, the foundation of the church, that Christ is the one on which we build. He is the head of the church, the centerpiece, the cornerstone, the, the foundation. And when we allow other things, and it's so easy to let this happen, when we allow other things to become the center, the foundation, and we build in a, in a way that is ultimately vain and it will be to our detriment. This week we're going to look at the purpose of the church. What's the point? To orient us in that direction, I want to I just draw you back. For some of you, you're too young to remember this movie. For others of you, it's right in your wheelhouse. For others, maybe you've never seen it. But I want to take you back to one of the best movies of my childhood. Karate Kid. Yeah? Get some love on that one? And I'm not talking about the Karate Kid that just came out four or five years ago with Will Smith's son. I don't know if that one was good or not. I refuse to watch it because it could never be better than the original. I'm talking about Ralph Macchio as Danielson, right? And the dude from Happy Days, I don't remember his name, is, Ralph, is, uh, is Mr. Miyagi. It, there's an important scene in this movie. And really it's a number of scenes that lead up to this one kind of um, climax of a scene where Daniel has come to this karate expert to be trained in the ways of karate. And Mr. Miyagi says, okay, fine, I'll train you. And Daniel wants to know how to defend himself. He's getting bullied and beaten up by these guys at school. And so Mr. Miyagi says, okay, and he agrees to train him. And the next thing that Daniel knows, all he's doing every day when he shows up to be trained by this master, this karate master, as he's doing all of his yard work for him. He's painting his fence. He's washing his car. But Mr. Miyagi is very meticulous in how he wants Daniel to do this. And he says, I want you to paint the fence in this action right here. And I want you to wax on and wax off. And it has to be very meticulous in this way. But Daniel's not understanding the purpose behind what Mr. Miyagi is doing. Eventually, Daniel gets so frustrated that he says to Mr. Miyagi, what's the point of all this? Why are you having me do all this? this I want to learn karate. And Mr. Miyagi says, show me paint the fence. 
Daniel's like, what? So he's like, uh, no, 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 show me, paint the fence, do it the way that you do. And so he does it, and as he does it, he blocks a punch from Mr. Miyagi. He says, do it again, and he blocks another punch, low, Mr. Miyagi. And he says, do it side to side, and he blocks a punch over here, and he blocks a punch over here. And then he says, show me, wax on, wax off. He blocks, blocks more punches. And suddenly Daniel realizes there was a greater purpose as to all this activity. I think that's a somewhat fitting metaphor to what can happen with us in church sometimes. Is that we can get so caught up in the activity that we're doing in church, the programs that we're a part of and the ways in which we serve. Or maybe it's just, for some of us, it's just simply a place to show up on Sunday. And the activity that you're participating in in the church is just coming here for worship, which is great. But we can get so caught up in the activity that we lose sight of the bigger purpose. What's the point of the church? Why are we here? Why did God do all this? So if you will, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read chapter, uh, verses 1 through 11. It's a lengthy passage. Bear with me as I read it. And like I said last week, most of the passages that we're going to be looking at, looking at in this series as we walk through these chapters in Ephesians are going to be lengthy. We're not going to be able to hit on everything that's in these passages but we'll hit the high notes and we'll hit as much as we can. Read with me in verse 1. It says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for this time together this morning, and thank you most of all for uh, your word, the scriptures that we have here before us that have been preserved through the ages. And we thank you that you tell us that your word will not return void and that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing between both bone, joint and marrow, and that you will pierce our hearts with it. We pray that this morning you would do just that, that you would make our hearts soft to receive the truth of your word, that you would give us ears to hear what you would have us hear. Convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And Holy Spirit, would you fill me as your vessel simply to communicate for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let me give you a little bit of context just right there off the bat as you see in this passage. The, the first thing that the Apostle Paul says is, he says, for this reason I, Paul, and then he gives a clarifier of where he is and what he is. He says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now there's a double meaning to this as well. It's, it's twofold. One is that he is literally a prisoner right now. And as he is writing this around 62 AD, this is his first imprisonment in Rome for being a missionary, basically. So he's in prison. But secondly, he, he often refers to himself, and you'll notice this in the letters of Paul, that he'll often use language like this to say, metaphorically speaking, I am now a prisoner or a slave of Christ. I used to be a slave or a prisoner to sin. I am now, because of the grace of God in my life and his rescuing work in me, He's given me a new heart, so now I'm no longer a slave to sin or a prisoner to sin. I am a prisoner to Christ. So he's speaking literally and metaphorically. And then he says this, that I'm in prison, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. He, he's, what he's saying there is I'm, I'm in prison because of you. And he's not saying that in a way that would shame them or that they should feel guilty about. He's saying it as a way of pride and glory. He's, he's in prison as a result of hostile Jews who hated that he was preaching this gospel of grace, this gospel of Jesus to all nations, to all Gentiles. And so he starts off that way, and then I'll just skip down to verse 13 because I won't have time to mention it later, but I just want to say, just so you can see that he's not saying this in a way that would make them feel bad, he's actually saying, look, don't worry about me. Look at verse 13 again. It says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. And then he says, which is for your glory. He's, he's saying, look, I'm, I count this as a privilege. I, I count this as a great joy to be in prison for you. Because if, if I'm not in prison, that means I haven't done my job and you haven't heard the gospel. And you know Jesus because I brought the gospel to you. And this is for your glory. Because one day you'll be standing in the presence of Jesus and you will be fully glorified and I will gladly go to prison for that. Pretty awesome. So this is a little bit of a context of where Paul's coming from as he writes this. But I want us to observe three things in this text as we kind of look at the heart of this passage. I want us to see three things. The first one is this. I want us to see that there's a grace that is supplied here, a grace supplied. The starting point for Paul, as he's, he's, he's going to move into some things here that are, that are a little heavier about the purpose of the church and the purpose of the Christ follower in the church, but he, he starts with grace. The starting point for Paul is grace, and it should be for us too. I know that I run the risk that every time I preach, I'm, I, I am very purposeful and, and almost always, and if I don't, then I'm not doing my job well, coming back to the grace of God. Remember what Christ has done for you because we are so quick to forget. Everything and anything that you have as a follower of Christ is, is a result of God's grace, period. I'm, I know I mentioned this last week, but I want to remind us again. Ephesians 2 tells us we were dead in the trespasses of our sin in which we once walked. What can dead people do? Nothing. Dead people can't just summon up the energy and the strength to say, okay, I'm dead spiritually, so I, I, I just I, I want to have enough oomph and want to, to follow Jesus. No, Christ himself, through his grace, has to make us alive. It's a complete and total work of his 
grace so that no one can boast. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you are saved through faith, not of works. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. Because if it were something of us, then we would boast in our ability. Look how good I was to come to Jesus. Look how I cleaned myself up and got my act together. But it's not that. It's the grace of God. There's two phrases that Paul uses in this text that are the exact same words in the Greek. Verse 2, he says it. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, and this is the phrase, of God's grace that was given to me. That same exact phrase is used again in verse 7, where he says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift, here's the phrase again, of God's grace which was given to me. He wants the Ephesian readers to know anything that I offer to you is a result of God's grace at work in my life and then now in yours. Paul was rescued by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. On his way to persecute and kill more Christians as a devout Jewish leader. And Christ invaded his life unexpectedly and opened his eyes. He blinded him, so there's an irony there, but opened the eyes of his heart to see Jesus and to convert him. And you may not, and I may not have been converted on the way to a city to kill Christians, but he invaded our lives in the same way. And he gave you eyes to see, eyes of faith, to trust him and to know him. And he gave you a new heart, and it's all a result of his grace. So notice that there's a grace supplied here that is the, the founding uh, piece, the bedrock, if you will, of to everything Paul's about to say. Secondly, I want you to see that there's a mystery revealed. A mystery revealed. There's four times in this passage that the word mystery is used. Three times in the Greek, four in the English because one is implied. But it's important to understand here what Paul is not referring to as a mystery. We hear the word mystery in the English language and we think of it as a, uh, maybe something along the lines of a magic show. Some type of great illusionist to where he does something and it's a, it's a complete mystery to us in the sense of we have no idea how that happened. We had no prior knowledge. We we're completely stumped. That's not necessarily how this word is used in the original language. The way that Paul is using it here is, is, is in the sense of that things before were not entirely known, but they were known at some level, but now we see clearly. So specifically, what Paul's referring to here is referring to the unfolding redemptive plan of God through the ages now fully revealed in Christ. Here's, here's one way to think about it. Jesus, the, the Old Testament readers and the Old Testament people of God, they knew that there was one coming. They knew that there was a rescuer coming, but they, through their own sinful heart and just desires and selfishness, they had really misconstrued and misapplied the scriptures and misunderstood them in a way to where they were looking for an entirely different rescuer than what they got. But all of the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. We just stumbled around. The people of God just stumbled around in trying to see and figure out how this was going to happen. It's kind of like this. B.B. Warfield says it this way. He says, he says, think of the Old Testament as fully furnished. Every piece is in place. The story is there, but the, the room is so dimly lit that we can't really make out exactly what it looks like or what the story is, and, and so we keep running into the furniture. But God has put it all in place. We just don't fully see it yet. And then, think of the New Testament is that he flips the lights on. 
And suddenly we see through Jesus now, we see how all of the Old Testament was actually pointing to Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was, was walking with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus that John tells us about in the Gospel of John? And he begins to tell them how everything in the Old Testament was about him and how all the scriptures pointed to him. Every piece along the way was about Christ. And now we fully see that. And that's part of the mystery revealed. But there's another part of the mystery as well. First part of the mystery is that Christ is revealed. Now we know what the rescuer looks like. We know who the Messiah is. We know how he has come. And we know that he has come in a way that we didn't expect. We wanted a military political leader who would overthrow Rome. Instead, we get a suffering servant who's here to overthrow our sin. So that's the first part of the mystery. But the second part of the mystery is that the, is there in verse 6. Let, let's look at it again. It says this. This mystery, Paul just blatantly says what it is, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is going back to some of the things we talked about last week, if you were here. That one of the things that was completely unexpected, like an illusionist doing his show, that we go, what? That, I didn't see that coming at all. That would be this. That the Jews totally missed, the people of God completely missed, that God's design from the very beginning was that all nations would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Remember when God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, he says, it's through you that all nations, through your seed that all nations will be blessed. That's that's an arrow pointing to Jesus, saying that through Christ now, we will preach this gospel of reconciliation to all people in all nations will be blessed, Jew and Gentile alike. Out of that is the third thing I want you to see. A mission burst. There is a mission that is birthed. And this is where I want to camp out for a little while this morning. Because of the grace that we have through Christ, because of this mystery that is revealed to us, we have a mission is the church of Christ. Paul says it this way. Look in verse 8. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, he says it again, this grace was given, why? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the first thing. That's the first part of the mission. That Paul's mission that Christ had given him was to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Then he says this, to make known to everyone, to bring light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. He's saying this, he's saying that my desire, my passion, my mission in life now, because of the grace that God has given me, is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable. That word means, means unimaginable, un- incomprehensible, even un- unable to understand it. It's so deep and wide, the riches of Jesus. And I'm only scratching the surface as a follower of Christ on this earth. Because of my sinful heart, I'm only scratching the surface of the unsearchable riches of Jesus. Think about it this way. One day you and I will be, if you're a follower of, of Jesus, you'll be in heaven with him and you will spend all of eternity mining the depths of the riches of Jesus. Let that sink in for a minute and let your mind be blown. Wait, all of eternity, we don't have a concept for eternity because everything on this earth and in our lives is time bound. But for all of eternity, we will mine the depths of the riches of Christ. That's how 
incomprehensible your Savior is. But even in the little bit that we understand, even in the, in the power of the grace that we have received, we, we will say, I with Paul, yes, this was his mission, but it is now our adopted mission as the followers of Jesus himself. I want to make known to all people in all places at all times these things about Jesus. And I want to take it to everyone, to make light to everyone what is the plan of God. What is the purpose of God? And then he says this, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. Pause. What would you expect at that point? If you're reading that, you would think that the manifold wisdom of God is displayed through his church so that his wisdom may be made known to I would say, the world. And that's true, and we'll get to that. But what Paul says here is something different. He says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be, might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, what God is saying is that remember followers of Christ. Remember this. Angels are created beings, and they're not made in the image of me. And they are all powerful, but you, mankind, you were made in my image. And the reason that angels were created were really not only to give praise and glory to me, but to serve you, men and women. And they're not all-knowing. They don't know everything that God knows. And so they are waiting with bated anticipation how this is unfolding. Peter talks about this in his letter in first Peter he says he says that even the angels awaited with great anticipation as to what the plan of God was going to be and it was the church and that now what we are as the church of God is that we are actually kind of like God's trophy on display to show his glory not just to the world around us but even to the principalities of the air the angels and the angels rejoice with us as they see and watch how God's church is triumphant they rejoice And they sing praises all the louder and all the greater. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Look at his church triumphant down there. Let's rejoice. Look at what just happened, how the mission went this way and this way. And this is incredible. God be praised. But it's also talking about the demons. The demons are waiting with bated anticipation. And they see more and more that they are not triumphant as the church is built by Christ. We are on display, not just to this world, but to every created thing in the heavenly places as well. It's pretty incredible. But we are on display to the world as well. And our mission as the church is to the world. Jesus said it this way, and you may be familiar with this very popular passage, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the age. He says, go, make disciples. That's the imperative. That's the verb. Make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Show the manifold wisdom of God to all nations. 
He created this thing called the church that only he could conceive of in eternity past. And then he does this really awesome twist of fate. And he says, not only am I going to build the church through these sinful people who I've rescued, but then I'm going to give them the incredible privilege of taking the message of reconciliation, the grace of Jesus to the world around them. Part of the way that we glorify God is not only in taking the mission, but how we take the mission. The thread continues from last week's passage into this week's passage of the importance of as we take the message of reconciliation to the world around us, that they see within us a community that is unique and contrary to the, to the current of the culture. That they see a people who are united with other people who are not like them, who are, who are with people gathered together, not just to come in here to worship, but to go into the world together, who are of different races and ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses. And, and as we birth, as Christ births a new type of community through us, that we would display to the world not just a unique message of grace, but a great display of his grace at work in the relationships of the church. And, it's, and so I want you to think about this. If God is greatly glorified by the ways in which we both proclaim and demonstrate his grace and his manifold wisdom to the world and the, and the heavenly places, then we blunt the glory of God when we refuse to love each other across racial and cultural lines. We lessen the glory of God. God's glory is not lessened, but we don't display it in its fullest when we refuse to do that. And we want to stay in our sameness and in our comfort. We blunt the glory of God because he is so glorified through his church being what he has called his church to be. The temptation in the church is, is this. This is the way the human heart works. The temptation as a church is that once we've experienced the grace of God and the rescuing power of the work of God through Christ in our own hearts, the real temptation is to take that and to go inward with it. Now, it's so important to press the gospel into our own hearts, to press the scriptures into our own hearts, to be involved in community. You're going to be, hear us talk a lot about that. But a lot of times what we end up doing is we become an ingrown community that's not outward facing. And the mission of the church gets marginalized. I want you to see what that looks like. So when, when the mission of the church gets marginalized and the preferences and the comfort of the people who are already in the church get centralized, then the impact of the church, remember this, these lights, these light-colored tiles around the church from last week represents our impact to the world, our mission to the world. The impact of the church gets diminished gets minimized to where what ends up happening oftentimes in church is that when the world looks at us and even when we look at ourselves if we're being totally honest what church has become for us is just simply a building to come to and not a mission to display not a light to be to the nations but a place of comfort and ease for me and that's not what God designed the church to be Certainly, do not hear me say, absolutely, we want to help you grow. Part of church is equipping the saints. And we're all about that here. But we don't do that in the place and the priority of the mission of the church. How do, how do we keep from looking inward? 
Well, we go to Scripture and we let Scripture realign us and reorient us to the heart of God for the mission of the world. But another way we can do this is we can actually take things that are around us all day, every day, and let them point us outward. One of the ways that I've seen God do this in my own life recently is, is this. Um, I follow a couple guys on Instagram. I, I, I should probably say that a different way. I follow a lot of people on Instagram, but there's two guys in particular I'm going to tell you about that I follow their accounts. They're astronauts. I've always been just really mesmerized by space. It's just, it's just crazy uh, how big and vast and uh, just how much we don't know. But how it speaks to the grandeur and the glory of a, of a God who would speak that into being. It also blows my mind that we, have two, that we have people that live in space on the International Space Station. We have these two guys, these two astronauts that I follow on their accounts. One is a guy named Shane Kimbrew who's here from, right here from Atlanta. He, he's lived in the International Space Station for the last several months. He just came home about a month ago. And then there's another guy named Thomas Pasquet who's a, uh, a Frenchman who's up there even now. He's been up there for the last several months. They take some of the most incredible images of Earth from space. And as I follow their accounts, there's been some images that have just absolutely mesmerized me, just, just caught my attention as if they were leaping off the page and smacking me in the face. I want to show you a few of those. First, let me show you this picture of, from Shane Kimbrew from, of Istanbul, Turkey. This is a shot of Istanbul from the International Space Station, and you see the, the beauty of the land and the, the landscape. But one of the things that jumped off the page to me was the density of that city, and it made me start thinking, I wonder how many people live there. So I found out 14.8 million people live in Istanbul. And then I thought, I want to learn a little bit about Istanbul. I know that as I've studied church history, this used to be an epicenter, a real thriving hub of Christianity. But today, as of my research, there are now only 12 Protestant churches in a city of 14.8 million people. This is a picture, this next one is an, of, I'm going to butcher this because I have a southern accent, Buenos Aires, Argentina. Those that speak Spanish just laughed at me really hard. Look at the density in this. I mean, look at, just in that one photo, this is just a simple little picture of just a portion of this city, and you go, man, how many millions of people are represented in that photo? And my, my thought is, how many of them don't know Jesus? How many of them have no concept of what the church is to be other than they walk past this really old building on the corner that nobody goes to anymore, and it's more of a museum that you go through and look at pretty paintings and sculptures? In Buenos Aires, there's 15.4 million people, less than 6% of whom identify as evangelical Christians. This is a picture of Paris, France. That just looks like an amoeba or something. Like, what is that? Like, that's crazy. And how many people are there? 11 million people, less than 5% in a recent survey attend church. Now, interestingly, 65% of French people identify as Christians, but, but Paris and pretty much all of Europe is quickly moving and has moved to be secular. But really, Christianity in, in most of Europe now is a tradition, not a faith. Less than 5% attend church in Paris. Is a picture of Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. 4.2 million people, very similar to the size of Atlanta. There is not one public church in Jeddah. Almost the entire population is Sunni Muslim. Osaka, Japan, 
Osaka has 20.4 million people. 20.4 million. Four times the size of the Atlanta metro area. 0.4% of Japanese people identify themselves as evangelical Christians. One more. Athens, Greece. Athens is about 3 million people. The majority, 88%, identify as Greek Orthodox. 0.28% identify as evangelical Christians. But Greek Orthodox is, yes, it's the church, but it is a church that is steeped in ritualism and iconography. My question is, how many of these people know Jesus? How many of them have tasted of the unsearchable riches of Christ? How many of them have had Christ invade their lives in such a way that their lives are dramatically altered and their hearts are shifted and the the heartbeat of their lives is to glorify their God on this earth? And everything that they do, where they live, work, and play, it's about Jesus. I lied. I got one more. This is Atlanta. There's a lot more trees in Atlanta than those other cities. But Atlanta has 5.7 million people. 33% of Atlanteans identify as evangelical Christians, which you go, wow, that's great, 33%. That means 3.8 million people that live around you do not know Jesus. 3.8. These are your neighbors. These are people you go to work with. These are the people that you walk into restaurants together, that you pass in the hall, that you see at school. These are people who God has placed you in their lives, not coincidentally, not by happenstance, but providentially and sovereignly to say, you carry with you the light of the glory of God. You have the unsearchable riches of Christ in you. And oftentimes what we do is we say, yeah, but I just go to this building and do activities When we have the incredible opportunity as the people of God, as a movement of God, as the church of God, to display to the world the unsearchable riches of Christ and to tell them about Jesus. And oftentimes we say that's just too uncomfortable. And I don't know how. And I get that. It's scary. But it's our calling. We are not called to be a stationary club to come and seek membership from. We are called to be a movement of God through the people of God, united together towards the mission of God. And the churches that are the healthiest churches in the world are the ones who are fully embracing, because of the grace of God in their lives, they're fully embracing the mission of God. This is the church that we long to be. Don't hear me say that perimeter is not this. I think we're headed and have been for 40 years in the right direction. God has done awesome things through you. and Thousands of people have come to know Jesus by, by faith. But I just want to say, keep looking outward. Don't be ingrown. Don't become comfortable. Ask God to make us uncomfortable. And ask God to say, give me a heartbeat for you and your mission. Because we are the church. And we carry the light of the gospel to the world around us. Let's be that church. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time together. Thank you for your word, for your grace, your mercy. Father, thank you that the scriptures remind us that you are the one who builds the church, and the church is and will be triumphant. We cannot mess it up. 
Even when we are disobedient, even when we don't embrace the mission, even when we fail to remember the grace of God at work in our lives, and even when we are self-focused and inwardly driven, you still build your church for your glory. And for that, we give you great praise and thanks. But Father, we do pray that you would work within us a heart and a passion to be what we were made to be, which is on display for all the world, to present to this lost and dying world in this dark place a light that is so attractive and a truth that is so palatable that we would be used by you as your people to lead many, more than we can count, into a love relationship with you. Would you use us to do that? We long for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.